welcome to this week's edition of Gravel Travel. I'm your host, JJ LaRue. Joe Rist is no stranger when it comes to adventure. She was the fastest female cyclist from Johannesburg to Cape Town, the first person to cycle around South Africa, and the first woman to circumnavigate Africa on a motorcycle. All of this on her own. I had a chat to her about her African adventure for some insight into the logistics and what she carried with her on the journey. Most people know me as the crazy girl that circumnavigated Africa on her own. In a nutshell, it started out on a bicycle. As fate would have it, I wouldn't finish on a bicycle, but rather on a motorcycle, and then managed to actually finish on a bike. And I went um, clockwise around the African continent. So it was a total of 45,000 kilometers over a period of about a year, uh, 28 countries at the time. That was the idea. You set out to circumnavigate Africa. That was the plan. It wasn't something that developed as you went along. No, that was the plan from the beginning, was to go around the African continent. Uh, it just it started out on the bicycle because at the time I was in my early, mid-20s and I was broke. And that's all I had. <laughs> so <laughs> I figured, well, that's what I have and that's what I'll use. Um, so the plan was always to go around Africa. How do you, how do you go? How much planning goes into something like this? Do you do you, do you sit down for weeks on end and plan the whole thing, or did you just plan the first stages of doing this? Yo, um, yeah, the planning is the big part of it, and the planning is what I really love about it—the logistical planning. Um, and we're talking months of planning. I mean, this is not weeks or days. I spent, I think, I would estimate maybe three months on planning. Uh, and this is all, you know, your visa requirements, route planning, um, everything from what you need for the trip, uh, technically gear that you need, uh, where to stay, everything included. What documentation you need, because that's probably the biggest part of it, is the documentation that you need for a trip like this. With regards to the documentation, how much information do you really have to give them? I mean, can you just say, look, I'm going to be in your country during this period? Or did you have to be quite specific with some of them and say, I'll arrive on the 26th and I'll leave, for argument's sake, on the 29th? Was it, was it, did you have to be that specific? It depends on the country. Like some countries are quite lenient. Um, they just want to know when are you going to arrive, when are you going to leave, what's your business, and that's it. Other countries want more details. They want proof of where you'll be staying, how long you'll be staying there, who do you know in that country, who's your contact, what are their contact details, their address. Um, so it depends on the country. And that's what makes it tricky because, you know, some, especially with visas, like some visas you get, they're valid from date of entry. Some visas are valid, valid, valid from date of um when you receive it. So it's a logistical nightmare for something like this because it's long distances in so many countries, different countries that you're traveling through. I suppose the sad part about something like that is 
if you arrive somewhere and you want to stay longer, you have to, it, the ramifications there of, you can't now just stay longer in the one country because then that pushes everything if, out. If, if you get, let's say, visas for the next five countries, then you, you're kind of limited to a specific timeline and you have to try and stick, stick to that timeline. Otherwise, it's all messed up. It must have been a hell of a lot of paperwork. Did you, did you carry lots of paperwork with you with uh, route maps and, and contact people in and around these countries? How did you find these people that, that, I suppose, helped you along the way that you had to stay with in inverted commas? Yeah, so for the paperwork, um, I did a lot of research and reading on online forums on overlanding, um, you know, as for the requirements for what you need for different visas. And then going on to online visa centers and figuring out what documentation you need for each visa because each one is different. And I actually at one stage had a photo of all the paperwork I needed for all my visas. And it was a stack. I'm not lying to you, maybe <laughs> 10, yeah, 10, 15 centimeters high of just paperwork for visas. And then it's the paperwork for your bike. Um, so all of that I got through reading forums going online, um, reading on visa, visas web, online um, center websites, phoning embassies. As for people that I stayed with, well, that was a very different story. Um, I never planned on, I never had a plan on where I would be staying on a day-to-day -day basis. At the beginning, I did a lot of camping, and this was just wild camping on the side of the road. And as my story started getting out and more and more people got to hear about me and what I was doing, this kind of, I always say it was like a, a bit of a human chain that started forming around the continent. And people would start passing me on from one family to the next. And, you know, one family would take me in, offer me a place to stay for a night, a plate of food, or even sometimes up to a week. Um, amazing, amazing, you know, giving, caring people. And then give me the details of family, relatives, friends further along. And then they would organize for me to stay there. Or it would be a case of motorcycle clubs in different countries that would contact me and offer to take me in as I got to their town. And, um, you know, put me up and make sure I was fed and looked after. So in that sense, people were just absolutely amazing. Take us through a typical border border crossing. Was it? I mean, obviously that was very different from border crossing to border crossing. Yeah. So for me, there's a, a, a definite divide between Western Africa, well, Southern Africa, Western Africa, Northern Africa, and Eastern Africa. So Southern Africa borders are easy. I mean, they can be a little. No, they're not even chaotic. Our borders aren't chaotic. When you get into Western African borders, like when you get to the Congo, um, Congo, Gabon, Cameroon, Nigeria, I mean, imagine it's like a little border city, border town with thousands of people coming to and from the two different countries and they're carrying goods and it's trucks and it's people and it's goats and it's animals and it's kids and it's absolute chaos. It's just chaos. <laughs> That's the only way to describe it. And there's a lot of bribery and corruption going on. Um, unfortunately, it's true, especially in Western African borders. And 
you have to be very careful of scams. They run a lot of scams at these borders, especially um, when it comes to overlanders traveling between the different countries. And then when you get to northern African borders, it's more militaristic. And then as soon as you get to about, uh, when you get to about Sudan, Ethiopia, then it becomes easier. Then it's easy. Then it's easy border crossings. Compared to when you've gone through Western Africa, when you get to the east, the east is like easy as pie. But uh, it can be tricky, especially when you're traveling on your own. I guess the idea would be then to just arrive with, without having any expectation because it might take an hour and sometimes I'm sure it took the best part of a day. Oh yeah, absolutely. So my, my thing was always, uh, my mindset was I have all the time in the world and I refused to pay any bribes. So I always said, I have more time than these guys have and I have more patience than these guys have. So let's see who, who budges first. You know, it became like a little game. And uh, especially in Western Africa. So the thing is, number one is just to smile. Just always smile. Number two, just keep your cool. Because as soon as you get frustrated and they see you get frustrated, then they've gained the upper hand. Because then they know, okay, now we've got you. You're frustrated. Now we'll just keep you a bit longer. So just smile. Keep your cool. And just do as you're told. And eventually they'll get bored with you and let you go. Okay, so you arrive, you keep your cool, and then you go through the whole process. You take your t- t- take your papers out. Did you did you have a did you have a, a system that you eventually found that helped you? Because I was on my own, I had to make sure that I um, would double strap everything down on the bike. So I would basically stop about five kilometers before the border town, and then take out whatever paperwork I would need for that border crossing. Make sure I strap everything down as tight as tight as I could to, you know, if anyone wanted to get into it, it would be a bit of an effort. <laughs> and then those days I was I still used to smoke. So I would have a smoke, <laughs> just a little courage. So whenever I got nervous, it was a case of count to ten, allow myself to feel that, whatever I was feeling, and then just go for it. And then there would be a system when you get to the border. And it would usually be go to customs, have your passport stamped then go to have your carnet de passage for your bike stamped. Uh, Then they would do an inspection of your bike. And then you would go through the first border, get to the next, have your passport stamped into the next country, and then you would enter the next country. There must be like the worst border crossing ever. (laughs) What what was your worst day? <laughs> yeah, they two they are two borders um that are known as kind of the worst borders on the African continent amongst overlanders. And the one is the border between Senegal and Mauritania. Um and the other one is the border between uh Libya and Egypt. Those two borders are just insane. <laughs> I mean they are I mean you can't really describe it. It is just absolute insanity, chaos, all thrown into one pot, and it's surreal. You get to, for instance, the border between Senegal and Mauritania. When I got there, it was during Ramadan. So I think I was actually lucky in a sense because it was a bit more quiet, but you have to cross a ferry, 15-minute ferry ride. And when I got there that day, they had a caravan of about 500 camels that also had to to cross and this is a, a kind of border where the moment you stop your vehicle there are hundreds of people around you with hands in pockets 
trying to shake you down. I mean, you haven't even had time to stop and they're already trying to just grab whatever they can. <laughs> and it's, it's absolute, I mean, it's crazy. It is crazy. And then the other one was between Libya and Egypt. I got de- detained for, I think it was about nine hours because they thought I was some sort of a spy. This is the only land border that you go through where they actually x-ray your luggage. And I have a love for knives. And when they x-rayed my luggage, (laughs) they just saw, like, (laughs) I think I had about, I don't know, eight or nine knives in my bag at that stage. (laughs) And a lot of these knives were knives that were gifted to me by people en route. So it's it looked a bit suspicious. <laughs> and so off I was sent off to their equivalent of their secret service and interrogated for about nine hours. And it was, you know, it's the kind of border where you go where um, customs officers walk around with their AKs and they're very trigger happy and shooting off live rounds around you, you know, trying to be very butch and macho. Um and it's, I mean, it didn't really, it didn't bother me at all. By that stage, I'd made it through most of, well, all of Western Africa and almost all, all of Northern Africa. So to me, it was normal <laughs> to have people with AKs around me shooting off rounds. There's no real secret to these things. It's just a matter of going in there and and doing what you have to do. There's no, like, have something in your back pocket to smooth it over. No, look, you never know what, what to expect. Like some people will bribe with cigarettes, so it's a good idea to always have cigarettes on you. You know, that might smooth smooth it over a bit or, you know, buy the guard a beer or, <laughs> you know, you start learning some tricks. I think it helped. It actually counted in my favor that I was a woman because they didn't expect it. You couldn't see that I was a woman when I was in all my rider gear. So when I arrived at, at a border crossing and I took off my helmet, people were so shocked that they didn't really know what to do with me. I think it actually helped a lot because um, especially when it came to the more militaristic type controlled border crossings, you know, the higher ranking officers would almost protect me rather than try and extort something out of me. Those were some of the, I, I guess, some of the more challenging things en route for you was there anything else that you that you recall that was challenging that you would rather not have again in a hurry (laughs) if you know what i mean (laughs) i mean a lot a lot can happen in forty-five thousand kilometers right yeah especially in africa there were a couple of instances where i had uh physical altercations with guys who were trying to steal something from me or uh, like, for instance, there was uh, the time that I was tied to, taped to a chair with a gun against my head, um, along with two other people. That's that's the kind of experience I'm not looking to have in a hurry again. There were two other instances where I was attacked physically in my hotel room um, in Mauritania and in Libya. But those weren't as serious. I mean, those were just guys trying to... Uh, you know, take take a chance, and uh, luckily nothing came. There was nothing. They didn't succeed in whatever they were aiming at doing. Other than that, you know, those were the only only experiences that I had that weren't as positive. There was always the risk of these kinds of things happening, especially as a woman traveling on your own around Africa. These were learning experiences for me. What else did you take with in the beginning? What was in your bags, hanging on your bike? 
Yo, I took so much stuff. <laughs> I mean, I really had everything and the kitchen sink. <laughs> I think as a as a newbie overlander or traveler, everyone tends to make that mistake. You always take too much. And um, because everything is for in case, you know, you don't want to leave something behind because what if just in case something happens? I had way too much clothing. I carried clothing, all my outdoor gear. So this was my tent, my blow-up mattress, my sleeping bag, my cooking utensils and stove. So I had a, like an overland toolkit made up specifically for my bike. I carried some spares, spare clutch cable, brake pads, uh, spare heavy-duty chain and sprockets, that, which was heavy. It's heavy stuff. And then just stuff like... Uh, you know, the normal stuff, Q20 and cable ties and duct tape. I had a satellite phone with me, solar chargers, spare tubes, patch kits. As you went along, did you come to the realization that you, you might have had too much stuff? Did you did you chuck a little? <laughs> did you throw some away? <laughs> Donate? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. There were a couple of times. So in Gabon, I think I left some stuff in Gabon, like clothing and some unwanted spares. Um, I left my satellite phone in Morocco out of fear that they might confiscate it in Libya. Chucked a lot of clothing. But I need, like, what I realize now is I can't do the crawl in and out of a tent anymore. <laughs> I need a tent I can stand, stand up in. Like, I need a tent that I can walk into. Because I just, I can't do the crawl in and out of tents anymore. Thank you for sharing this insight. In the meantime, you've started your own touring and training facility and also took up a position with Fast KTM in Johannesburg as their brand ambassador. What's happening with you after the lockdown? Uh, yes, so I have actually decided what next. Um, you know, for the longest time, this has been my greatest struggle. You know, when I finished the trip around Africa, I'd been like a dog that's been chasing after this bus for years. And then I finally caught the bus and then it was like, well, now what? <laughs> And um, I struggled with that for a long time. And then I started, you know, making this into a, a livelihood with the training and the tours and everything. And that's kept me busy for a couple of years. But what this lockdown has done is actually given me the time to just sit back a bit, reevaluate where I am and what I want to do going forward. And I have decided to carry on with my round the world trip. So, um, yeah, <laughs> more big plans um, coming. So I also recently entered into a new relationship, romantic relationship. Um, and it's been very interesting. Your cheeks uh, just you know, went very red, by together. the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're getting locked down like two weeks into our relationship. Uh, but it's been amazing. Uh, we are very kindred spirits. And, um, you know, we decided that uh, well, luckily he wants to do this as well. <laughs> so, so the two of us have decided we're giving ourselves two to three years and then we are going to embark on a round-the-world adventure. I'll tell you what, we're looking forward to that journey or hopefully, I mean, I would imagine that, that you would want to share it as well as you did the first ones. So this time around, I'll do a much better job of it because I'm going to run um, like weekly episodes on my YouTube channel so I'll do a lot of documenting and filming and photos and write up articles about it. So, yeah, there will be a lot of sharing about the journey. Thank you for your time. I hope in the future we can connect again, maybe on a different level. Happy uh, lockdown. <laughs> Happy lockdown. <laughs>